Thank you very much for, for the invitation, and hopefully I will have a little bit for both. I know there's clinicians and basic scientists in the audience, and the story I'm going to tell you today is really a translational story that went from the clinics to the lab and back to, to the clinics, and it's related to a hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia. So what I would like to cover today starts with a clinical overview of hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia due to congenital hyperinsulinism, and also gonna review the mouse model of this condition and then bring you to our studies related to incretin involvement in this condition and also in hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia after gastric surgery. Congenital hyperinsulinism is the most common cause of persistent hypoglycemia in children. In this country, we estimate that approximately one in each in 50,000 kids are affected by these conditions in other areas of the world. It's a more common condition with an incidence of up to one in 2,500. And in the last 25 years, we have made a tremendous advancement in the understanding of the molecular biology of congenital hyperinsulinism. And mutations in six different genes are now known to cause this condition. And I will review them in, in my next slide. Despite this advancement in molecular biology, very little, if any, progress has been made in the treatment of these conditions, and the medications that we have available are the same medications that were used 30 years ago. The first line of therapy is disoxide, which works in the ATP-sensitive potassium channel, and therefore is not effective in the most common and severe form of this condition. And octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog, is the second line of therapy which has a, a more effective profile in all the types of hyperinsulinism, but the effect wears off very rapidly due to tachyphylaxis. And more, more, more recently, we have been concerned with an increased incidence of necrotizing and enterocolitis in young infants associated with the use of these medications. So we actually know using in our neonates. As a consequence of delayed diagnosis and poor management. The rates of neurodevelopmental deficits in these children is quite high. It's approximately 44%. This is a cartoon of the beta cell depending glucose-stimulated insulin secretion, and I'm just going to briefly review so we can point at these steps that are affected in this pathway that can result in hyperinsulinism. So as you know, Glucose is metabolized by glucokinase, resulting in an increase in ATP in the beta cell. And this increase in ATP results in the closure of ATP-sensitive potassium channels, resulting in depolarization of the plasma membrane and opening of voltage-dependent calcium channels, resulting in an increase in intracellular calcium and insulin secretion. Amino acids can stimulate insulin secretion if the beta cell is depolarized by glucose through the metabolism of glutamate by glutamate dehydrogenase. These ATP-sensitive potassium channels, as I said previously, are the site of action of disoxide and a octreotide or somatostatin analogs at downstream of the ATP channel. 
dominant gain of functions of glucokinase cause a mild form of hyperinsulinism that usually can be treated medically. Interestingly, a loss of function mutations result in neonatal diabetes in the homozygous state and in the heterozygous state in familial monogenic diabetes. Mutations in glutamate dehydrogenase result in the hyperinsulinemic hyperammonemia syndrome that was first described by Charles Stanley at our center and presents with mild hyperinsulinism associated with hyperammonemia. And these children are very sensitive to stimulation with protein. More recently, a rare form of hyperinsulinism has been attributed to mutations in an enzyme in the fatty acid oxidation pathway, and the mechanism is not yet well understood. Ectopic expression of monocarboxyl transport 1 as a result of dominant gain of function mutations in the promoter encoding this gene is associated with an exercise induced form of hyperinsulinism. And more recently, dominant mutations responsible for familial monogenic diabetes or MODI type 1 have been now associated with neonatal hyperinsulinism. So it's a dual phenotype that presents in the neonate with hypoglycemia and then diabetes later in life. The most common and severe form of hyperinsulinism, and the one that I'm going to refer to today, is due to recessive loss of function mutations in the ATP-sensitive potassium channel. And as you can see, because this is the site of action of disoxide, these children are largely unresponsive to medical therapy. The ATP-sensitive potassium channel is a heterooctameric structure formed by four subunits of the sulfonyl urea receptor 1, and four subunits of KR6.2 that form the inner potassium pore, and it's the site of action, again, not only of disoxide, but also of uh, sulfonylureas used in a treatment of diabetes. The mutations responsible for uh, hyperinsulinism are scattered throughout both genes and can be missense, splice-side mutations, stop codon, or deletions and uh, most of them are inherited in a recessive way. So KTP hyperinsulinism is the most common and severe form of this condition, and this regulated insulin secretion resulting from the abnormal ATP-sensitive potassium channels result then in severe fasting and protein-induced hypoglycemia. There are two distinctive histologic forms. There's a focal form that it involves the inheritance of a paternal mutation together with loss of heterozygosity and therefore loss of the normal allele from the mother together with tumor suppressor genes that are imprinted in that area of chromosome 11. So this results in a focal adenomatosis um, lesion in the pancreas. And approximately half of the patients that we see have this focal form of hyperinsulinism. The rest have a diffuse form that affects all beta cells in the pancreas. So because of the specific mutations in these channels, these children are refractory to medical therapy and require a pancreatectomy very shortly after birth to ameliorate the hypoglycemia. 
For the children with a focal form, if you localize the lesion before surgery, you can cure their hyperinsulinism. And we have been very successful at localizing these lesions using 18 fluorodopa PET scanning. But for the children with diffuse hyperinsulinism, the outcome of surgery is very poor. Uh, approximately half of them have persistent hypoglycemia even after 98% pancreatectomy and require intensive medical therapy. 20% of them will require insulin for diabetes, and the rates of surgical complications of the 98% pancreatectomy is as high as 31%. So this is how one of these babies look when they're born. They are very large due to the growth-promoting effects of insulin in utero. They have severe neonatal hypoglycemia shortly after birth with glucose levels in the single digits in milligrams per deciliter. Um, and they also have cardiac hypertrophy, probably related to the effects of increased insulin secretion in utero. In addition to severe fasting hypoglycemia, we now know that these children are also sensitive to protein. Um, and in these figures, you can see blood glucose levels before and after a protein load in children with KTP hyperinsulinism compared to normal controls. And basically, a protein meal with no carbohydrates doesn't stimulate insulin secretion, and therefore, blood glucose levels are unchanged. In contrast to this hypersecretion of insulin in the fasting state and in response to a protein, these individuals are in, have impaired glucose-stimulated insulin secretion, so basically their beta cells are blind to glucose. And you can see that here on the left is um, an acute insulin response to glucose, and these are the glucose levels of a subject with KTP hyperinsulinism and his insulin levels that don't rise accordingly to the stimulation compared to a normal control where you can see the ri nice rise on insulin secretion in response to glucose stimulation. We have for the last year been isolating islets from the surgical specimens of the infants that undergo a 98% pancreatectomy to um, understand the fuel stimulated insulin secretion in, in these uh, islets and contrast there with the um, mouse outlets that have been published previously. And as you can see in these static incubation studies on the left, the pattern of fuel stimulation insulin secretion in the isolated islets follow the same pattern that I show you from the subjects in vivo. In blue are uh, islets from normal uh, cadaveric donors, and in red is the islets from the infants with KTP hyperinsulinism. And you can see that in response to glucose, insulin is not stimulated in the uh, HI islets compared to normal islets. But in contrast, there is this very breast insulin secretory response to amino acids. And we are now have been successful in isolated enough islets that we can do perifusion studies with these islets. And in here, in, um, in green is again a normal adult control. And in blue and red is two subjects with hyperinsulinism, a very significant difference in both of them. Uh, the, the blue follows this classic pattern of increased insulin secretion in response to amino acid and lack of response to glucose. The lack of response in the red uh, lipidic islets is perhaps 
those islets were not healthy or it may be related to the genotype because that patient had mutations that we have not seen before. So we have a few questions that we wanted to, to answer and ultimately be able to develop new therapies for these children. Does this regulated incotrin secretion resulting from lack of these KTP channels now in the enterendocrine cells can play a role in the pathophysiology of KTP hyperinsulinism? We want to understand the mechanism of protein-induced hypoglycemia in these children, and more importantly, we want to find ways of restoring glucose responsiveness in this population of children. So we took some of these questions to the bench, and we're fortunate to have um, a collaboration with Franz Marchinsky, who had obtained the SUR knockout mouse from uh, Mark Magnuson in Vanderbilt, at Vanderbilt University. and. Um, this mouse has been previously clinically, uh, phenotypically characterized. And although the phenotype is milder if you compare it to the human phenotype, they exhibit the characteristics that you would expect from the absence of ATP-sensitive potassium channels. So in the fasting state, blood glucose levels are lower, and insulin to glucose ratios are increased. And when you stimulate these mice with a load of glucose, you um, can see that they are glucose intolerance compared to wild-type mice and have impaired glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Isolated islets from these mice exhibit the same fuel responsiveness that I show you from the human islets and what you would expect from the in vivo studies. Baseline insulin secretion is increased compared to wild-type islets and there is lack of responsiveness to stimulation with the glucose ramps compared to the normal wild types that have this very nice insulin secretory response. In contrast to this lack of response to stimulation with glucose, these islets are very sensitive to stimulation with amino acids in the absence of glucose. So normal islets don't respond to amino acids if you don't have glucose in the media, but these islets have a very significant increase in insulin secretion, and actually 60% of that response can, is, is, is attributed to glutamine. So if you take glutamine out of the amino acid mixture, you decrease that amino acid response by 60%. As you would expect, because of the lack of ATP-sensitive potassium channels and the depolarized plasma membrane, intracellular calcium levels are elevated at baseline, and amino acids, particularly glutamine, further increases intracellular calcium in these isolated islets. So when we were studying some of this work, there were some papers that indicated that ATP-sensitive potassium channels, similar that their role in the beta cell may play a role in nutrient sensing and secretion of GLP-1. And that's what brought us to look at GLP-1 secretion and GLP-1 receptor signaling in ATP, KTP-independent insulin secretion. So as you know, GLP-1 is a potent insulinotropic incretin hormone that is secreted by intestinal L cells. Now more is understood about the mechanism of GLP-1 secretion, and it's a complex mechanism involving direct and indirect mechanisms. And it turns out that perhaps ATP-sensitive potassium channels, although expressed in those islets, don't really play a critical role in GLP-1 secretion. The GLP-1 effects are mediated via specific G-protein 
linked transmembrane receptor, and GLP-1 potentiates glucose-induced insulin secretion through cyclamp-dependent pathways. This is a picture depicting an enteroendocrine cells and the secretory granules with direct contact to the intestinal lumen. And this incretin effect had been known for a long time. So the first publications were back in the 60s, where they described that a volus of glucose given through the jejunum results in a higher, here, results in a higher insulin response compared to a load of glucose given intravenously. So this difference is what we call the incretin response. And two main incretins are a non-GIP or glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide was isolated back in 1970s, and later glucagon lipeptide 1. Together, these two incretin hormones account for approximately 90% of the incretin response. And GLP-1 has multiple actions separate from its uh, insulin stimulatory effect that the, have the ultimate effect of lowering glucose levels, and therefore it makes it a very attractive therapy for diabetes. And um, as you know, exenatide that was um, based on a naturally occurring peptide, Exending 4, originally isolated from the saliva of the Gila monster, is now a market drug for the treatment of diabetes. The studies that I'm going to show you center in the use of a truncated form of Exending 4, Exending 9 to 39, that has a specific antagonist effect of the, on the GLP-1 receptor and have been shown to impair glucose tolerance both in humans and in a variety of animal models. So we had a hypothesized that a normal GLP-1 secretion in the absence of ATP-sensitive potassium channels contributes to the phenotype of KTP hyperinsulinism, and that antagonism of the GLP-1 receptor may therapeutically elevate blood glucose levels. So we first tested this hypothesis in the mouse model of congenital hyperinsulinism. We treated both wild-type and SUR knockout mice with a continuous infusion of extending 9 to 39 over two weeks and follow glucose metabolism after that. And what we found was that the elevated insulin to glucose ratio in the fasting state was corrected by the treatment with extending 9 to 39, and therefore there was correction of the fasting hypoglycemia, and this effect lasted throughout the treatment period. Interestingly, in this background strain, uh, which was black cysts, we did not see a significant effect of extending 9 to 39 in wild-type mice, although we have previously described a very significant effect on fasting blood glucose levels in a different mouse strain. And in isolated islets from these mice, we showed that treatment with extending 9 to 39 inhibit the amino acid effect on insulin secretion. In static incubations, we look at the effect of treatment with extending 9 to 39, both on SACLAMP levels and insulin secretion, trying to understand 
very crudely with this experiment what the pathway of the effect is. And what we were surprised to find was that baseline SACLA AMP levels were decreased with extending 9 to 39 in the absence of, of the agonist. Although you could postulate that perhaps there's some local GLP-1 secretion in the islets, um, this also points to perhaps a constitutively active GLP-1 receptor in these islets. Amino acids stimulated an increase in SACLA-AMP and extending 9 to 39 was again able to inhibit that effect on SACLA-AMP. And the effects of insulin in these static incubations follow the same pattern, pointing at SACLA-AMP perhaps as um, upstream of the insulin secretory pathway effect. We did not see an effect on calcium. Uh, calcium levels were unchanged at baseline and in response to amino acids in these islets. And more recently, with the pancreatic islets isolated from the children with KTP hyperinsulinism, we have seen an inhibitory effect of extending 9 to 39 again on the amino acid effect in these islets. So we think that in the absence of these ATP-sensitive potassium channels, the depolarization of the plasma membrane results in an increased intracellular calcium, but perhaps also a cunning effect of the GLP-1 receptor contributes to this dysregulated insulin secretion. And stimulation with amino acids further increase calcium and SACLA-AMP, resulting in even more insulin secretion in these islets. And extending 939 by its inhibitory effect on SACLA-AMP is able to inhibit both baseline and amino acid-stimulated insulin secretion. So to summarize what I have told you so far, pancreatic islets like in KTP channels exhibit an abnormal pattern of fuel-stimulated insulin secretion. And we have shown this both in the human islets and in the mouse islets. There is a impaired glucose-stimulated insulin secretion and a hypersensitivity to amino acids. The GLP-1 receptor seems to be constitutively active in these islets. SACLA-AMP seems to play a key role in this KTP-independent insulin secretion because lowering SACLA-AMP, even without changing the increase in intracellular calcium, was able to inhibit insulin secretion. An antagonism of the GLP-1 receptor by extending 9 to 39 therefore inhibits baseline and amino acid-stimulated insulin secretion in the SUR knockout islets and corrects the fasting hypoglycemia in SUR knockout mice. So we have brought back these findings now to the bedside and had a hypothesized that extending 9 to 39 will increase fasting blood glucose levels in the human subjects as we have demonstrated in the mouse model by a suppressing insulin secretion and perhaps also increasing glucagon levels. So we conducted a pilot clinical study to examine the effects of this peptide on fasting blood glucose levels of human subjects with KTP hyperinsulinism. We enrolled nine subjects to this pilot study. This was an open-label, randomized, crossover design study done under an investigator-sponsor, IND. The subjects came to the CTRC and were fasted overnight and then received an infusion of extending 9 to 39 or vehicle for six hours 
in two consecutive days than in randomized order, and our primary outcome variable was blood glucose levels. This table depicts the characteristics of, of those subjects. Because of safety concern, we enrolled adults first and then lowered the age of inclusion to 15 because the clinical experience with this peptide was very limited. At that time, there were only two published studies that had used this peptide in humans. So because these subjects were older, their phenotype was milder. Some of them have the classic recessive severe mutation and had, had pancreatectomies in infancy. Some of them had milder mutations that were dominantly inherited. So because they were older and some of them had had pancreatectomy, after an overnight fast, their blood glucose levels was no low. It was actually a little bit too sweet. But during the course of the six hours of infusion, on the day that they were receiving vehicle, blood glucose levels gradually decreased, and eight of, out of the nine subjects had symptomatic hypoglycemia and needed to be rescued with dextrose, limiting the effect that we could um, elucidate. While on the day that they were receiving extending 9 to 39, blood glucose levels remain unchanged. These are their insulin levels during the infusion. As you can see in green, on the day that they were receiving vehicle and blood glucose levels were decreasing, they still have um, insulin secretion. And while on the day that they were receiving extending 9 to 39, insulin levels were decreasing. And this is a um, perhaps better seen here when you look at insulin in relationship to glucose. Basically, in the extending 9 to 39 days, this was unchanged while it was increasing on the day that they were receiving vehicle. We have postulated that one of the effects of extending 9 to 39 will be to increase glucagon, which is now known to be decreased in this population, uh, and based on the observations that GLP-1 inhibits glucagon secretion. But in these nine subjects, we did not observe any effect on glucagon. We didn't see any changes also in active GLP-1 levels. So in summary, antagonism of the GLP-1 receptor by extending 9 to 39, we have now shown suppresses insulin secretion in SUR knockout islets corrects the fasting hypoglycemia and the SUR knockout mice, and elevates fasting blood glucose and suppresses insulin in subjects with KTP hyperinsulinism, and also suppresses abnormal insulin secretion in islets from infants with KTP hyperinsulinism, although we need to um, do more studies in these isolated islets from surgical specimens. And all this points to a role of GLP-1 in the pathophysiology of hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia due to mutations in the ATP-sensitive potassium channels. It turns out that there are other examples in the literature that point to GLP-1 in relationship with hypoglycemia, although I have to say hypoglycemia is not a common complication of the treatment of diabetes with exenatide, except in cases where you combine the therapy with sulfonylureas and therefore depolarize the plasma membrane. So basically, it's like you have a defect in ATP-sensitive potassium channels. But in normal subjects, if you use an intravenous of a succutaneous GLP-1 bolus combined with 
combined with intravenous glucose, it has been shown to induce hypoglycemia in healthy subjects. And there is one example in the literature of a GLP-1 secreting tumor that presented with severe hypoglycemia that resolved after tumor resection. More interestingly, elevated plasma levels of GLP-1 in partially gastrectomized adult subjects or subjects after gastric bypass surgery have been proposed to be responsible for the postpandria hypoglycemia observed in this population. And these reports came out back in 2005 and created a lot of controversy because here we were doing a surgery to resolve diabetes and obesity and was resulting in severe hypoglycemia in these um, subjects, so severe that many of them required then a pancreatectomy. And the controversy came also around the fact that both of these reports attributed the hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia at least in part to an increase in eyelid hyperplasia. But um, Patty and, and Goldfein from the Jocelyn Center reported that in response to a mixed meal, these subjects with gastric bypass surgery had a very dramatic increase in incretin secretion, and a, that that was perhaps in part responsible for the exaggerated insulin response and subsequent hypoglycemia in, in those uh, subjects. A more recent report really points to this effect of incretins rather than a pancreatic eyelid hyperplasia because you can reverse the hypoglycemia, as you can see here, in a subject with hypoglycemia after gastric bypass surgery if you use the stomach rather than feeding by mouth, which would go directly into the distal intestine. And as you can see, when you do that, when you reverse, if you want to say it like that, the bypass by feeding the subject through the stomach, in incretin secretion is dramatically decreased. Both GLP-1 and GIP go back to normal levels. So it really points to an incretin hypersecretion as responsible for the hyperinsulinemia and hypoglycemia rather than um, eyelid hyperplasia. In children, we don't do um, gastric bypass surgeries in a large number, but we do a good numbers of nascent fundoplications for the treatment of re reflux uh, that results in the same abnormalities uh, and that I'm going to describe briefly. Uh, this surgery is done mostly in very vulnerable populations that have other neurodevelopmental problems and have severe reflux, and to prevent aspiration, then they do this fundoplication. But it has been known for a while that approximately 30% of these children develop dumping syndrome as a result of the fundoplication. And what we have observed is that you don't really see that pattern of dumping syndrome with the early gastrointestinal symptoms, but you see a very severe late dumping of severe hypoglycemia two to three hours after a meal. And because these are children that have other neurodevelopmental problems, it's most of the time unrecognized that they're having hypoglycemia. They have more seizures and they think that that's their underlying condition. So at the Children's Hospital now, we have established a screening protocol that every baby that goes from the NICU to have a fundoplication is a screen for hypoglycemia before they go home. And, and I think we're going to come up with a 
prevalence that is higher than 30%. So what we have shown in these children with thumping syndrome after Nissen fund duplication is that they also exhibit this very dramatic incretin response to a glucose of a nutrient load approximately three times higher than a normal subject, and that perhaps with the hyperglycemia explained this very high rise on insulin secretion in response to a stimulation. And I just want to point, I have a very large aerobar here because one of my <laughs> subjects had an insulin level of 1,000, which is um, at least 10 times higher than what I have seen in other kids. So what we think happens in these children is that the fundoplication results in a decreased gastric capacity, decreasing gastric relaxation because you need that fundus to, to, to uh, accommodate food in the stomach, and this results in rapid gastric of a hyperosmolar glucose-containing load into the small intestine that then results in hyperglycemia and an exaggerated incretin response resulting in hyperinsulinemia and then hypoglycemia. So in summary from, from this part of my talk, individuals with postpandial hypoglycemia, both after gastric surgery and Nissen fundoplication, have exaggerated secretion of GLP-1. So we think that this exaggerated secretion of GLP-1 contributes to the exaggerated insulin surge and subsequent hypoglycemia, and therefore therapies target at decreasing GLP-1 secretion in these patients may lead to resolution of the hypoglycemia. So we're now expanding our studies with extending 9 to 39 to this population as well, but I don't have data to show you yet. So in conclusion, GLP-1 and its receptor may play a role in the pathogenesis of hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia in children and perhaps in adults too. And GLP-1 receptor antagonism may have a potential therapeutic role in these disorders. And uh, we're very excited because we just got funding from a rapid access to interventional development program from the NIH to do the pharmacology mm -hmm. and toxicology studies that are needed from animals so we can explore more doses and, and alternative ways of administering this peptide. They are also developing a subcutaneous formulation for us. So we are now conducting a therapeutic effect studies in a more effective children, so neonates and older children that have persistent hypoglycemia. We're also looking in vivo and ex vivo in trying to understand what the role of endogenous GLP-1 signaling on islet function, both glucagon and insulin secretion is in the absence of ATP-sensitive potassium channels. I have to finish by acknowledging all the people that have worked with this work, my collaborators, Charles Stanley and Doris Stoffers, Franz Machinsky for all the islet studies, and Chang Lee, the nurses and nurse practitioners from our hyperinsulinemus hyperinsulinism center and the shop CTRC that, that really makes possible for academia to, to do this work because other, otherwise we couldn't get a grant with enough funding to support these clinical trials. Um, the fellows and uh, technicians from my lab, the families that participated, and we have received funding from the NIDDK and the Goldsmith Foundation as well as the Lester and Lisa Baker Foundation. Thank you, and I'll be happy to take some questions. Yes. Hi, I'd like to ask um, um, a couple of questions in your 
Yeah, so uh, we, when we plan that study, we have planned to do both GLP-1 and GIP, but it turned out that the assay that the CTRC used was not good enough, so I don't have data for GIP from that set of patients, and we didn't measure glucagon, but we are doing it now in a new study where we are also using XND9 to 39, so hopefully in a year I'll have some answers related to that. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, um, the, what is interesting is that most of these children are fed um, high caloric formulas because they are, you know, premature babies in the NICU, most of them. Uh, so, no, we haven't really looked specifically at what nutrients or if it's the hypersmolarity or um, what really is what's triggering the, the um, exaggerated incretine response. We have seen it with just plain glucose stimulation, and we have seen it with a mixed meal that has a normal composition of both carbohydrate, protein, and, um, and a fat. But we haven't separated each component. Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, the, what they, and it's one case. It was one case that they used to, to demonstrate that. But what they show is that the same individual, if you give them the same stimulation by mouth, and therefore it goes through the stomach and then, you know, follows the normal pathway, you prevent the hypoglycemia, you prevent the rise in insulin levels, and you prevent the rise in incretin response. Well, if you give it, I'm sorry, that, that's, that's, yes, yes, I mean the stomach, when you give it to the stomach. But when you give it by mouth, because it goes directly bypassing the stomach into the distal intestine, you see that pattern of increased insulin, increase, um, incretin response, and then hypoglycemia. So it really points to a functional effect of nutrient delivery more than an increased mass of beta cells. Later, the, a different group have looked at those pancreases that John Service reported to have islet hyperplasia, and they didn't see any islet hyperplasia in the same specimen. So I think it's controversial. Some people think there is. Some people think it's not. Uh, my feeling is that those were obese individuals, so probably they have an increased beta cell mass to begin with. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's what's causing their hypoglycemia after the surgery. So when I 
first started this work, I thought that we were going to find that GLP-1 levels were higher because of the defect, but we haven't seen that. And the studies that we did with the isolated islets point more to a receptor that is on that then you can inhibit with extending right. 9 so to 39. The, is it that the receptor is on in the usual sense that people mean when they talk about an activated receptor, or is this just biasing due to increased post-receptor transmission issues? Yes, I, I don't so. know. Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's part of what we are trying to understand with our new studies. Uh, yes, I don't know. It, if you take normal, you know, a, a beta cell line, you can see similar effect depending on what phase of that beta cell line you look at it. But you can see also lowering of baseline SACLA-AMP. So it's perhaps not, you know, that action that we see of extending 9 to 39 in the absence of agonists. Perhaps it's not particular to ATP-sensitive potassium channel defects. Thank you. Yes, yeah.